You listen to 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode. She makes her second appearance on this podcast. She's the author of the fictional novel, All the Bumpy Pebbles. When she was here before, we had an in-depth discussion on sex trafficking. And she's here today to discuss her new firm that deals with supporting victims and survivors. I'll be right back with Tamara Cherry. So, Tamara, welcome back to 247 Real Talk. Thank you for agreeing to be a guest again. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure last time, and I'm sure it'll be a pleasure this time. Absolutely. So, last time we had a really good and in-depth conversation about the uh, sex trafficking uh, trade um, from Canada, and it was very good mm-hmm. because my audience was able to compare it to a previous episode with that I discussed the sex trafficking case, um, cases with someone from the United States. But mm-hmm. now we're back to talk about your, your newfound uh, passion, and that is the firm, the public relations firm, uh, Pickup Communications, that you uh, founded. And the whole goal is to support victims and survivors of traumatic events. So start off by telling us, what what made you decide to give up journalism? Well, there was never there was no one incident that drove this, but I was I'll just go back a little bit. I was a crime reporter in Toronto for almost fifteen years, and I was reporting I mean almost exclusively on crime for that period of time. So. Uh, a big chunk of my time was spent interviewing family members who had lost loved ones to homicide, to traffic fatalities. I interviewed a lot of survivors of human trafficking. People uh, who I talked to, I was often talking to them during their darkest moments, their darkest days. Um, they would let me into their homes. Uh, sometimes, actually, a lot of times I had doors slammed in my face. And there were so many times, as, as much as I thought, you know, about the importance of sharing these stories, because it was always my goal to create compassion and empathy in the community and, and make, you know, the mother, for example, in the very affluent neighborhood of Toronto, relate to the mother in the very impoverished neighborhood in Toronto when she sees that mother talking about the homicide of her son, the murder of her son. And I was also trying to invoke empathy, you know, with with people that knew something about these crimes so that hopefully they would see these interviews on TV or read them in the newspaper because I I worked for newspapers and on television and, you know, pick up the phone and call in an anonymous tip to Crime Stoppers or call in a tip on the record to the homicide squad at Toronto Police. Um, But there were many times during my career that I thought there has to be a better way Why is it that I am going and knocking on this family's door and then they're pouring their heart out to me and then two minutes later, reporter from another station is doing the same thing and then two minutes after they leave, there's another, another, another. I think there was was one case in particular that really drove it home for me and that was a case a few years ago, um, Thanksgiving Day crash in Canada, so our Thanksgiving Day is, is different in October 
And um, there was a street racing, an alleged street racing incident where a man, a vehicle crossed the center median and slammed into an oncoming vehicle. And the man who was driving that first vehicle died. And so did the three occupants of the other vehicle. And those three occupants were two sisters and one of their boyfriends. And I remember filing a story a few, do- a few days after this had happened. Police had made an appeal for information. And as far as I was concerned, I had the story in the bag. I had, we had some surveillance camera footage of this allegedly racing vehicle. We had uh, an, a great interview with a, comp- a compelling plea for information from one of the investigators on the case. Um, I was putting my story together and I got a call from a colleague of mine at a different news outlet in Toronto saying, are you talking to the, the sister's parents? And I said, no, I don't, I don't see a need for bothering them because as far as I'm concerned, I have everything I need for this compelling story. And he told me, well, I have their address. I'm going over there right now. And then myself as a reporter, I'm thinking, well, now I have to go because if he's going to be talking to them, then my bosses are going to be asking me why I'm not talking to them. And, and what if they want to be talking to the media? And I don't know. And, and there was nobody for me to call and say, hey, does this person want to talk to the media or do they want to be left alone? So all I could really do was go over there, knock on the door and, and see. So by the time I rolled up on this house, the person that had talk, called me was interviewing this grieving father and he finished the interview. And then I went up and I said, I'm sorry, you know, I know you just did this. Would you mind going over it with me again? And he was very gracious and, um, you know, making this very compelling plea for information. He just wanted to find the guy that was racing the other guy that caused this crash. And he just lost both of his kids. He had, he had two kids and he just lost both of them in, in an instant. And then after I was done that interview, a colleague of mine from another TV station in Toronto was standing there waiting. And I'm just thinking, why does it have to be this way? Why can't this man, if he wants to talk to the media, do it once and then share with everybody? Or if he doesn't want to talk to the media, have somebody there to make the media go away. Or if he doesn't want to talk, but he wants to put out a statement, have somebody help him with that. There's got to be a better way. So I left my job at CTV Toronto uh, last year, actually about almost exactly a year ago today. And I launched this firm, Pickup Communications. And uh, Pickup comes from, that's basically a term that journalists use for when they have to go and 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 get a pickup from a, a grieving family. That's where you go and you get a picture of the their deceased loved one and, and try to get an interview with the, the grieving family members. So many times in my career, especially, you know, as a young reporter, I was told by my bosses, can you go get a pickup on, you know, the hit and run case or the homicide from last night, go get a pickup, go get a pickup. And it was the worst part. I always said it was the worst part of the job and it was the best part of the job is the worst part of the job, obviously, because no reporter wants to go and knock on that door. You don't know, what what's waiting for you on the other side. You don't want to be bothering these people, but it's part of the job that you have to do. And it was the best part of the job because sometimes those people invited us into their homes and thanked us as we were leaving for allowing us to, you know, give them a platform to tell the world about their loved one. So I was often conflicted about it, but one thing I knew was there had to be a better way. So pick up communications, uh, like you said, it's a public relations firm that's aimed at supporting victims and survivors of traumatic events 
We do other public relations work as well uh, to try to pay the bills because most of what I'm doing right now is, is pro bono work. Um, but basically, I'm just trying to be there as a person to help people navigate their way through the media. So either put out a statement, a video statement or a written statement, or just sit down with them and explain the process. You know, this is what, these are the sort of things you can expect to be asked by the media. These are the sort of things you might see in the media that could be potentially upsetting for you, that could be triggering for you, just, you know, so they can make informed choices about whether they want to engage with the media, whether they even want to turn on the radio in the morning or turn on the TV um, as the anniversary of their loved one's homicide is coming up. Um, and the, the, the feedback I've gotten so far has been tremendous. You know, the, the people I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with, the survivors I've been able to support have been very grateful to have somebody there. And now I've sort of made it my mission. I'm trying to change the system by which victims and survivors of traumatic events interact with and are impacted by the media. So I'm doing the work I'm doing with survivors, but I'm trying to change the way that things are done. So there's a lot of layers to that. I don't know how much you want me to get into it. I've sort of blabbed on for probably a lot longer than you're expecting there, Julian. No, that's great. We needed a foundation that, that as I listen to you, I have a lot of questions. So, Good. Um, so someone's a victim of, of whatever, traumatic event. Why? There's several parts. I don't know if I can necessarily ask them in the correct order because as they come to mind. But number one, are you the only company that's doing this? The only firm? That's part one. And if the, if you are not, how do the victims make a decision between the firms that do this? And let's start with those two. There are many more, but let's start with those two. So I've, I've yet to find anybody else that's doing this kind of work. Um, and I actually, after I launched my company earlier this year, um, I had a lot of people from the public relations world reaching out to me just saying, like, we didn't even know it was possible to find, like, another niche in this market, but you've just done it. Like, the work I'm doing is very different because my aim is to provide this work for, for victims and survivors at no cost to them. I would never want to take money from a, a victim or survivor of a traumatic event for, for a whole myriad of reasons. Um, but yeah, so there's not the choices right now that for by and large, when it comes to especially traumatic events involve criminal investigations, uh, such as homicide, um, the choices that victims and survivors have now are basically say nothing, you know, and, and, and sometimes they're directed by homicide investigators not to talk because they don't want them to jeopardize the integrity of the investigation. If for example, they're potentially witnesses to the crime um, and there are other choices or, you know, engage with the media, but you're on your own. There's nobody there to tell you, you know, what's appropriate or inappropriate to say, what kind of questions you're going to be asked. What are your rights? What are you going to see in the media that could be upsetting? What's going to happen if you don't talk? What's going to happen if you do talk? And, you know, what can you expect in the days, weeks, months, years to come? I've never found anybody doing that work. I have, however, um, I'm in the midst of a research project right now examining some of these issues. We can talk a little bit more about that later. But I have found some victim service providers that are doing some of this stuff, but it's been really few and far be between. Actually, I found one a really excellent victim service provider who works 
uh, for victim services uh, attached to the uh, Las Vegas Police Department. And I haven't been able to find anybody outside of her um, who's actually really supporting victims in dealing with the media. So I've created this public relations firm doing this. I don't even, like, in in an ideal world, there would be no need for pickup communications because victim services and in in the United, victim services are usually agencies up here working with victims and survivors. And in the United States, I know there's victim advocates. They would already be working in concert with members of the media to, you know, effectively communicate the stories of, of crime victims and survivors or not communicate them. If, if some, some people want their privacy respected and that should be respected, but, but that should be facilitated by victim service providers working, uh, you know, sort of hand in hand with members of the media and it's just not happening. So that's why I created this and, and no, I haven't found anybody else doing it. Okay. So that even, I even have more questions now. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Someone, again, someone has a traumatic event happen to them, and I'm assuming that if they don't know about you or your firm, there is some mechanism or some advertisement on your firm's behalf or something that allows them in the process to connect with you. Um, I'd like to hear about that. And then reporters... um, there are different types of reporters like you've even alluded to. And so does it then become, if, if, if a victim comes to you, however they get to you, and I'd like to hear about that, but if they are now engaging with you and reporters do start, you know, ringing their doorbell, knocking at the door, do they then say, I'm sorry, speak to pick up communications and you guys are, are become the, the voice of or the, or the protector of to a certain extent? I mean, what stops the, the onslaught, especially if it's a, it's a you know, headline catching event, what stops this, this similar onslaught of, of, of reporters, albeit that they don't have to speak with them, but um, you know, is it, is it, is it a, an honor system where the the people in the media uh, communicate with each other and find out that okay, pickup communications is is the middleman, or how does all this work? Mm-hmm. Okay, so first to go back to your first question, um, you know, how do they find out about me? So what I've been trying to do, and and the COVID hammer that that banged down on all of us came down shortly after I launched this company. So a lot of my meetings kind of came to a halt, and they're just sort of picking up now, but. The idea in terms of the business model was that I would be sort of working in consultation with police services. So police services would hire me as a consultant and offer my services basically free of charge to the victims and survivors that they're working with. So in an ideal world, when somebody is murdered, um, say in New York City, New York City Police Department, if I was working with them, uh, would then be able to tell the, the victim's family, you know, you might be dealing with some media attention on this case. We work with a consultant who used to be a crime reporter and now is a victim survivor advocate when it comes to the media. Uh, you can give her a call or she'll give you a call and walk you through what you can expect and, and sort of tell you what your next steps can be. Um, and then I would talk to them and, and be able to consult with the victim's family and 
and tell them, you know, what sort of things they can expect and all the, the other things that I discussed earlier. And if they want to put out a statement, I could, I can interview the, you them, <clears throat> excuse me. And I've done this with um, other survivors where I basically just interview them uh, like I would as a reporter. And then I write a statement on their behalf. I send it back to them, get their okay. And then I would distribute it to media on their behalf. So then in terms of what then stops the onslaught, if I'm working with a victim's family, then um, exactly. It can, it can, it can work in one or one of two ways. And this is sort of what I'm telling police services. Um, I can either be working in the background with a, a victim's family. And, and if they, if I'm helping them put out a statement, I could then either send it to the police service to release through their regular, uh, media relations and social media channels. Um, or I can become that go-to person. Exactly. So, if there's a family of a homicide victim or a traffic fatality and they're getting bombarded with media requests and I've already talked to them, I either tell them and they don't want to engage with the media, I tell them to either tell the members of the media to call me um, or, you know what, you write this down on a piece of paper, you stick it on your door, and then if anybody's calling you still, you tell me who's calling you and then I can act as their advocate in following up with them and either providing them with the statement that is needed to to, you know, feed the media interest, give them what they need for that element in their story, or express to them in no uncertain terms that this family is, is asking for privacy and does not want to engage with the media. Um, and the importance in that, too, is um, sometimes family members say that they don't want to talk to the media, but then there might be a very persistent reporter, and so they finally cave and they talk to that one reporter. And so while the other reporters have respected their their request for privacy, once they see that they've done this one interview, then they all go back and they're knocking on the door again. Without having an advocate there or somebody who can explain the process to them, at least beforehand, um, they're just going to continue running into more and more problems. So because I worked in that job for 15, almost 15 years as a crime reporter, I understand how the media works. I understand what they need to tell their stories. I understand why they're going to speak with these family members. Um, I know how to make them go away if that's what the family wants. And I, and I know how to sort of satiate their needs. And, and I totally get it. Like, I, I definitely see value in communicating the stories of crime victims if they want them to be communicated. But what we need to understand is, uh, by and large, members of the media in journalism schools, in newsrooms, they do not receive training when it comes to things like trauma-informed interviewing or reporting or you know, bereavement, any of this stuff, we're just sort of thrown into it and it's trial by fire. So, you know, you, you hope that if you're, you're ever on the receiving end of this media attention, and I hope that you never would be, or anybody in my family would be, that you come across a compassionate reporter who is very experienced and will respect your wishes and won't be bullied into knocking on your door day after day after day because their producer or editor or whoever back at the newsroom or the station is telling them to, um, but you might get an inexperienced reporter who's, um, you know, vulnerable to, um, the demands of, of the newsroom and the competitive nature of the news business and perhaps doesn't know, you know, possess the right level of tact or compassion or experience, life experience, uh, to properly handle these interviews and these interactions. Um, so my, my role in this all is to be that buffer. So I, I call myself a media liaison for victims of crime. You know, you think about what the biggest news stories are outside of COVID or even inside of COVID. And you're talking about sports, you're talking about politics, you're talking about crime. 
The difference is when you're talking about sports and politics, athletes, politicians, they've all got media handlers. They've all got media training. They're, they're all very well scripted in what they're saying, and they're protected when the media is coming down on them hard. Uh, they've got people that will sort of push the media aside or step in, in for them and, and speak on their behalf, put out a statement, what have you. When you're talking about crime stories, the people at the center of crime stories, by and large, are the victims and their loved ones. And they're, by and large, being left to fend for themselves. And what a vulnerable, you know, sad group of people to to leave that, you know, to leave them in that situation. It's just, it's awful. And, I mean, there's all sorts of ways that I think victims are are failed by the various systems that we put in place to support them. Uh, but this one, for me, has always been a huge void in, in, in victim services that are that are offered to to people that have just been through, you know, the most unimaginable situation that that none of us would hope to be in. Okay, so yeah, I can see the whole um, I can see the whole need for something like that. Just even if you're someone who just who is not a a, a victim uh, or you know has experienced that personally, but you've you've read the stories or you've you know you read the tragedies in in the um, you know, in the newspapers. Um, so you depend on, you know, the, the, the income that's needed to run the firm apart from any side gigs, you basically depend on police departments um, for funding, I would say. for mm-hmm. and police, um, de- police departments, government grants, that's the stuff that I'm going after. Like I said, every, everything I've done so far has been pro bono because I'm passionate about this and I have survivors, homicide survivors in particular that have come to me wanting help and I want to help them. And I also enjoy the opportunity to prove, you know, to, to show the need for, for this sort of work because I know how dire it is. Um, but yes, yeah, that's, that's ultimately it. I've, I've had other people suggest some more creative funding strategies, but for now it's been uh, basically just, just me doing it and, um, you know, hoping that, that soon I'll be able to figure out how I can, can sustain this, you know, more long-term. Yeah. I mean, because you left, you're saying that you left your other gigs, your other jobs. So, um, you know, this is not really an income source either at this point, I'm assuming. Um, being no, re- right. no, it's, it's like, it, I, I like, I, I want to call it, part of me wants to call it a passion project, but it's not that because it's not a project. Um, like I said, I'm, I've created this new career for myself and, and I do do other public relations work as well. Like I'm a professional storyteller, you could say, but um, this is, this is my focus. I want to do this as a job, but I'm also just trying to change the system by which victims and survivors interact with and are impacted by the media. So I should also say like going back, um, for the past eight years, I was also a, a professor at a local college. Um, I had, I had helped them in like the beginning stages of, uh, creating this victimology program. And they had asked me to create a course called victims and the impact of the media. So for the past eight years on and off, I was teaching future victim service providers, um, how the media operates you know, how they can work with members of the media to help victims communicate their stories. And it was a class I was, you know, I was excited to create and I was passionate about teaching because I saw such a need for it. 
as a journalist. So I've been sort of on both sides of of the fence for for several years now, from the you know the victimology perspective as well as the the journalism perspective. Uh, but now I'm focused on you know changing the system so that there isn't a need for that. Like that class I was teaching, I was teaching 25 students a year. There's a whole lot more people that need to be learning about this who are victim advocates, victim service providers. So I'm working with victims. I'm also you know offering training for victim service providers, police services, uh, members of the media when it comes to this. And, and I, I said, I'm, I'm in the midst of this big research project right now in which I'm, I'm surveying and interviewing, you know, dozens upon dozens of, of crime survivors um, about their interactions with the media. And while I can't get into the, the findings of it yet, like in, in, in great detail anyway, just so I don't, I don't want to jeopardize um, future surveys or, or um, interviews, I will say that I think that it will it'll be very it'll be a very impactful project. It's been very impactful for me. I think it's going to be eye opening not just for members of the media and and criminal investigators and victim service providers, but members of the public as well in in the way that they think about how they uh, you know view news stories and read news stories and because crime, true crime, you know, it's a hot topic these days, not just on the five or six o'clock news, but in podcasts, you know, there's a lot of rubbernecking that goes on when it comes to these horrible situations. You know, people are like to gawk at, at misery. And I don't think they put a lot of thought into, you know, what's happening behind that door before the reporter knocks on that grieving loved one's door or what's happening in the months that followed or, or what's this, what's, what's this grieving family thinking two months down the road when they suddenly see the, car wreckage from their, their loved one's drunk driving death or their, their son's homicide that, that, that suddenly the, the crime scene footage of that or the shot of it, his body bag being loaded into the coroner's van is, is brought up on the news unexpectedly. Like, what sort of impact does that have? I mean, I, I've been talking a lot about homicide um, and traffic fatalities, but there's, there's another sector, too, that's been really opening eye-opening for me and it's very relevant especially for um you guys in the united states and that's survivors of mass violence you know all these mass shootings that that you guys have you we've had some in canada unfortunately as well but you guys had a lot more and think about the, the trauma that is experienced by survivors of these shootings when they turn on the news and they see the cell phone footage and are hearing you know, the pop, pop, pops of the gunshots over and over again, played on the loop day after day after day. And then even when the, the media coverage of their shooting sort of dies down, then there's another shooting and they're they're subjected to it again. So that has been something, and again, I don't want to get too much into some of the responses I've had, but suffice to say that survivors of mass violence, like people that were obviously not killed in these events, uh, be it, you know, school shootings, mall shootings, whatever, um, but they, they were there for it or were perhaps injured. Um, it's something I hadn't considered, but the, the media coverage and, and how journalists perhaps um, approach those survivors um, and interact with them is, uh, is something that we need to be paying attention to. And it's something I think everybody needs to think about because we're all, by and large, we're all consumers of this news. And again, I think it's important stuff for us to be reporting on and to be learning about, but I think it can be done in in a better way. So what are your, what, what is, 
ge- geographically, what is your target market for this? Um, and I say that because so geographic. Go, go ahead. Because yeah. Yeah, I say that because obviously it sounds to me that the support that you could provide, especially in today's world of COVID, can all be done virtually. So um, you don't, you don't, you're not limited to, you know, where you can reach by car or anything like that. You can have, you can provide this mm-hmm. sort of support to basically anyone anywhere in the world that speaks every, any language that you speak. Exactly. So what, yeah, do you, what is your intent? I, the survivors I've worked with uh, have been in Toronto. I, I worked with a woman in Louisiana. Uh, it, it's all been virtual over the phone. The vast majority of the work that I do can be done virtually. And actually, before we started this recording, I was just telling you, Julian, that my family just recently moved from the Toronto area to Saskatchewan, a couple provinces over, uh, further into Western Canada. Uh, and we did that because I knew that what I'm doing can be done from anywhere. And I set up my company in a way that I could work from anywhere so that I could help people everywhere. Um, before, you know, before I launched this, it was a few years in the making of, of meeting with different stakeholders, victim service providers, homicide investigators, that sort of thing, having conversations with them about the need for it, listening to their feedback. And I realized in the research that I did, and in the research I did in creating that victimology course I referred to before, that nobody was really doing this anywhere. And so at least like the the, the news markets that I'm familiar with are in Canada and the United States. But I know that there's a lot of other countries where the same thing would be needed. And actually, I've you know, I've recently been in touch with a woman whose son was murdered in Toronto several years ago, and I've kept in touch with her over the years. And she was communicating with me from Sarajevo, where she's she's recently moved back there. And she was telling me that while she had problems, some problems with the media here in Canada, the problems she's she's encountered there have been even worse in in, in terms of the way that um, victims and survivors are portrayed in the media and how their how their stories are communicated to the public. So different countries, I think, and different media landscapes have different issues. And there's certainly different issues in the United States than there are in Canada. But I've seen enough similarities uh, in Canada and the United States that that has been basically my my target market, if you can call it that. And and that's who I've been working with. And, and that's who uh, I've been working with for this research project, too, in, in surveying all the the survivors that I that I've been surveying and interviewing. It's it's I would say it's I haven't counted yet, but I would say of the, you know, close to 100 people I've either spoken to or or had uh, a survey filled out from, it's probably about a 50-50 split, Canada and the United States, and a lot of the stories, uh, either side of the border, it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you live, it's, uh, and even state by state, province by province, I'm seeing, you know, very similar stories everywhere. Okay, so... It it sounds like yes, it does sound like you've um, found a niche. It does sound like um, you know the being being a victim is is can be a very complex issue for the victim to deal with. And it sounds like um, yeah, in the United States here, there may be a lot of advocate services, but you know, they I don't know they necessarily come with the experience that you have based on your 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 employment history and your you know. But um, one of my uh, um, of the questions I have left, if you had, if, if everything worked in your favor, where would 
or what would pickup communications look like, I don't know, five years from now? Hmm. Um, I'd have a team of people working for me. They'd probably be made up of mostly of former crime reporters, journalists who have, who have a very good understanding of how the media operates, but also uh, the know-how in, in telling stories and the, by and large, first and foremost, I should say, the compassion in, in dealing with victims. Uh, they could also be public relations professionals. But um, the thing I, I like about working with crime reporters is they understand the, the importance of protecting the integrity of criminal investigations. And that's always been uh, one of my number one priorities in, in telling these stories. Um, and I'd have people working all over the place so that, you know, somebody is killed in Chicago, in Toronto, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in, you know, Florida, wherever, and the homicide investigator or the victim services or victim advocate personnel uh, who meet with the victim's family can tell them from the get-go, you know, there's somebody available for you to talk to if the media starts calling, if you feel like you can't handle it, or even if you just want to have a conversation beforehand about what you, you can expect, or if you want to put out a statement, or, you know, we're having a news conference, we'd like you to participate you know, you can go and meet with this person and they'll prepare you for it so that there's somebody available to do that. So that's one scenario that would make me very happy. Another scenario that would make me very happy is that, you know, this research project that I'm doing right now, I, I know it's going to result in some really valuable educational tools for victim service providers, members of the media, criminal investigators, uh, in terms of teaching them best practices in, in supporting victims and survivors of traumatic events and dealing with the media. And so I would love it for those materials to, to get into the hands of, of all those different stakeholders and finally have a system by which everybody is sort of working together with the victim and survivor, um, their needs uh, at the forefront so that people who have experienced these trauma, traumatic events are not then further traumatized by not necessarily just their, in, their interactions with members of the media, but with the media coverage of their cases. And that does not just fall on journalists. It falls on the investigative teams. It falls on the victim service providers. And it, you know, I, I want to create a system by which everybody is working together uh, to ensure that, you know, those, those darkest days are uh, not only not made any darker by media coverage of these cases, the very important media coverage quite often of these cases, but perhaps made a little bit easier by, you know, some 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 good advice from either a victim service provider or somebody working for pickup communications. Okay, great. So um, I should tell my audience that in the body of the episode, when it, this episode airs, um, I'll have any and all links that you want to provide for um, not just victims, but I guess law enforcement around the world or wherever to be able to have you know to know how to get a hold of you. And mm -hmm. to be able to utilize your services as part of their process. Um, uh, I would want to ask you, well, my last ask from you would be, since this is a service that you want to get out there, you want to let the victims who, who probably, you know, want to lessen their trauma, lessen their uh, post-event trauma and the, long, the longstanding impact it can have on them, is there a message you want to you wanna say um, on behalf of yourself and pick up communications directly to the victims before we wrap this up? 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're on the receiving end of this message because if, if you're in that category, then you're in the most unfortunate category that none of us would ever want to be in. Um, I guess my message would be that, you know, you don't have to do things in a certain way. There are options. There are ways to to communicate your messages that are not intrusive, that are not exploitive, um, that give you a semblance of control and that you have rights. And, you know, I know you said you put in the body of the email, but yeah, uh, or in the body of the, the podcast, but uh, one of the things I have on my uh, website is a frequently asked questions section for victims and survivors of traumatic events. Um, so I would say go there and check it out because I, I answer a lot of the questions that were often posed to me over the years by um, victims and survivors of things like homicide, traffic fatalities, you know, questions like, my loved one has just passed away. Why does the media want to speak with me? Or what questions will be asked in an interview about my, my loved one? Or where can I expect to encounter the media? Um, I also have a brochure on my website that any victim service provider can download, print them out, give them out to um, victims and survivors of these traumatic events. Um, I think the number one thing that we can do is, is arm these victims and survivors with information uh, but also keeping in mind that in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic event, they're not necessarily in a position to receive this information. And that's why it's so important that they have somebody there uh, advocating on their behalf and taking it all in and helping them make informed decisions um, in, in the midst of all their, their grief and, and everything that comes along with it. Fantastic. Fantastic. So um, I want to, you know, first of all, thank you again for, being a repeat guest on the show, that's, um, I'm really grateful for that, thankful for that, especially since both of your episodes are so informative and so educational. Um, on behalf of my audience and 247 Real Talk, I also want to thank you for being one of the selfless people in this world who look at the sufferings of others and look at a way to to ease that and to provide them some sense of normalcy you know in a world that's crazy and and you know people who listen to this episode who have never been a victim might have a little difficulty connecting at times but i think you know eventually the older we get we all know someone if it's not directly related to us we all know someone who's gone through this type of trauma and Mm -hmm. you know to, to selflessly provide these services by thinking about the victim is something we need more of in this world uh, I think it's the way we were designed to live as human beings to provide support for each other so that, you know, we, we, we all have uh, the possibility of, of uh, living a life that, that, you know, where we lean on each other and, and where the outcome is eventually positive. So I thank you so much mm-hmm. for your selflessness and for pickup communications and, Although it was not in this episode, I'll also remind people about the, you know, to, to go listen to your episode, your previous episode on sex trafficking, because it all lends to the work you've done overall and to how much you've done to assist uh, victims. So thank you so much for your service mm. and for what you do. Mm. Thank you so much for your kind words, Julian. All of that means so much, and I so appreciate the opportunity to come on again and, and to have this platform to talk about something I'm, I'm really passionate about and I want to spread the word about. So thank you. You're quite welcome. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure.
to say a very special thank you once again to my guest, Tamara Cherry, for her second appearance on 247 Real Talk, her second very informative, selfless uh, appearance, and thank her for the work that she does for victims and for those of us who are most vulnerable and need the most help. I also want to say thank you, as always, to my supporters and all my listeners. I remind you that you can listen to every and all the podcasts on your favorite podcast app. You can also head over to the website, www.247realtalk.net, where you will find all of the episodes and information on the guests. If you'd like to be a guest in the show, or you'd like to just send me a note, leave me a message, you can email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. Until the next time, be safe, be good to yourselves and each other.